Hey everyone, I know real estate is a hot topic and I'm sure a lot of you are interested in it. And I think that's a good thing to be interested in. It can be a heck of a side hustle or even like a completely different career track that allows you potentially to totally shift out of medicine. But for all this to work out well, you gotta do things right. And a big part of that is being smart and efficient with taxes. So today I've brought in Brandon Hall to discuss real estate tax strategies for physicians. Now, Brandon is a true expert. Not only does he have a large portfolio of real estate himself, but he also founded an accounting firm that's dedicated to helping real estate investors manage taxes efficiently. He's also the host of the Tax Smart Real Estate Investors podcast. So I think it's safe to say he really knows his stuff in regards to real estate taxation. I would even say the odds are that he probably knows more about it than your accountant does. So I think this is gonna be helpful whether you're already investing in real estate or if you're considering it for the future to start to dig into taxes. So before we get started though, I wanted to go through a couple things. I'm gonna, I feel like I need to start calling this like the shiny object disclaimer, but anytime we talk about real estate, it tends to come across really well, like people get excited about it. I even feel excited after going through it and I feel the temptation to want to invest, you know, as soon as possible. So you'll probably come away from this feeling good about real estate and that can be great. You know, the motivation to take action is, is important, but I also think it's important to keep yourself level-headed and not just dive into the emotion. So I wanted to go through six things that will hopefully keep us a little more level-headed as we consider getting into real estate. So number one, direct ownership of real estate is not passive. In reality, it takes hard work, whether that's educating yourself or running the business and all the stuff that comes with it. And I know most of you are, are probably already really busy. So you gotta be thinking about like, what are you gonna say no to before you say yes to real estate? Number two, owning real estate directly is not helping you to diversify more. In fact, it's actually the reverse. It's concentrating you more in one area of real estate. Now that's not necessarily bad. I think important to be aware of this and it's a common misconception that people think, okay, I'm gonna do this to diversify, but that's just not true. And that's why I'm bringing it up. Number three, investing in real estate requires courage. Feeling a little fear going into a deal, especially your first one, that's completely normal. In fact, I'd be more concerned if you weren't feeling any fear at all. I think the key is to be aware of the risk and have a plan for how you're going to navigate it, you know, even in the best case or the worst case and have the courage to take action on it. Number four, doing what you said you're going to do and making sure others do what they say they're going to do is extremely important in real estate. You got to have thick skin and hold people accountable, whether that's tenants or contractors or people you're working with. Otherwise, you're going to be taken advantage of. Number five, don't expect to get rich quick. I think it's better to go in with pretty modest expectations, especially for the short term, and kind of think of this as a long-term deal. There's gonna be times where it's harder to make money or even times when nobody's making money in real estate, you know, over short periods of time, and that's completely normal. So you wanna kind of get into this long-term mindset. And then number six, education is really important. So it's great that you're listening to this type of thing. And I think the more of this, the better, but it's not everything. Experience is also really important. So ideally you're educating yourself as much as you can while also actively looking for opportunities to start experiencing it as soon as possible. Now, real estate can be fantastic, but real estate can also be a train wreck. So I, I think the key is to keep these considerations in mind in order to increase your chances as much as you can of, of doing really well in real estate.
Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. Brandon, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Daniel, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man, I love this topic and I'm excited to dig in. So Brandon is the man when it comes to taxes and real estate. He is the managing partner for Hall CPA, which focuses in real estate investing for pros. We were just talking about it. Y'all have about 800 clients uh, around the country, right? Yeah, yeah. About 800 clients across the country. We've got a US team of about 42 and another 20 offshore. Yeah. So pretty big team, lots of, lots of good tax stuff going on there. And he is the host of the tax smart real estate investors podcast. And we were also just talking about that since 2016, right? Since 2016. Yeah. So 2016, I went into my firm full time. I was on the bigger pockets podcast as a guest and I realized how powerful being on a podcast was. So I wanted to start my own, but as I was kind of explaining to you off air, it was really haphazard at first. It was just whenever I could record like three episodes, I would. So I'd release three episodes and then I'd go months without an episode. And my co-host, Tom Costelli, at the time he was, I had hired him to be an employee of mine. And he was like, hey, I want to help with the podcast. But my one requirement is that we do it consistently every single week, mm -hmm. except for the week of Christmas. We can't miss. I was like, all right, well, <laughs> as long as you can hold me accountable to that, <laughs> I'm good with that. We could do yeah. that. But knowing that myself, I was like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> That's the hardest part of about it is long, long, long term consistency. It can kind of get a little monotonous at times, but then it's exciting at times. So nice work for hanging in there for this long. No, I and appreciate that. They do all kinds of good stuff. If you really want to dig into tax and real estate, well, we're big advocates of like educating yourself, especially in real estate. Like you, I think it's a little risky to just, or maybe even ignorant to just jump right in and do it. And so educating yourself, at least along the way, is huge. And if you want to dig into the tax, or really you should be digging into the tax and you can find all kinds of good stuff just in digging into your all's podcast because you, you know, heck, you've been doing it since 2016. So you got all kinds of good gems in there. So that's, that. that's a good spot for you guys to go to if you're new to this. We're going to be touching on like high level taxes. We're going to not go too much in the weeds. We'll try not to. <laughs> but anyway, so maybe a good starting point for talking tax and real estate. So there's a lot of good tax benefits of real estate. I'm sure you, you guys listen and heard of like, you know, real estate's a great tax shelter or it's a great tax benefit or, and usually that's kind of it. You hear just like, it's a great tax shelter or great tax benefit. So maybe we could start with like talking through like, how does it actually work? Like, where does real estate go? What's this whole like passive thing and active thing? Like, where's it going your taxes? How does it generally work? Yeah. So when investors first buy real estate, they do hear about all the tax benefits. And when they get to their first tax return with the real estate on it, the rental real estate, I should say on it, they are often disappointed. And they're disappointed because the tax loss from the rental real estate doesn't actually offset their W-2 income or their business income like they thought it might. 
And what they then learn about is something called the passive activity loss rules. Those rules came into play in 1986. Congress, the, the intent of Congress was to stop people from investing in, re- in rental real estate as tax shelters. So before 1986, you could be earning a million dollars of income. You could go buy rental properties, use depreciation to create large tax losses and directly offset your W-2 income. No issue. So rich people were buying a ton of rental real estate and using that to pay no taxes because they would use it to offset all their W-2 income. So Congress put Section 469, the passive activity loss rules, into play in 1986. And those rules basically said rental real estate is now considered a passive activity and losses generated by passive activities cannot offset income generated by non-passive activities. My non-passive activities are my W-2 income and my business income. Mm -hmm. So basically what happened was rental real estate kind of got siloed into its own bucket and any losses generated by my rental real estate could not be used to offset my W-2 and my business income. And there are exceptions to the passive activity loss rules, but in general, you know, we, we report the rentals on our schedule E, we take all these deductions, take all the depreciation, we get really excited about it. And then the actual tax loss does not flow through to offset my W-2 and my business mm-hmm. income. Instead, it gets suspended and carried forward into future years. Right, which is kind of a Debbie Downer. Uh, most, most of you guys listen are physicians. And so it's when you're in practice, you're typically in a higher tax bracket. And that's where a lot of times when you hear like the tax, great tax shelters, great tax benefits, it's going off this idea that you can offset your top tax bracket income practicing as a physician, like if you're, especially if you're in the top tax bracket, if you're making high income, you can offset that high tax bracket income with this loss on real estate on the front end. But what Brandon was just explaining is like, you know, in a lot of cases you actually can't and due to this whole passive rule, maybe, maybe we should take a step back too to clarify, like for those that haven't invested in real estate, like how are you getting a loss? Yeah, that's a great question. So depreciation is primarily what drives tax losses. And actually, I should say, hopefully depreciation is the only thing driving your tax losses. Yeah. Because <laughs> if, if, you're, if your depreciation, if, you're, if you have a loss before we factor depreciation in, you have a real loss, like you're actually losing money. <laughs> yeah. um, but the way that it works is if I buy rental real estate and it produces, let's just call it $30,000 in rental income, and then we have $20,000 of operating expenses. All right. So my maintenance, my insurance, property taxes, all that type of stuff. I have $10,000 of cash flow, of, of net income. It's $30,000 revenue minus $20,000 of operating expenses. So in this case, I've made money. $10,000 has either hit my pocket or it's gone to the bank to pay off my note. But then we have depreciation expense. Depreciation is an annual expense that you get to claim because you own the property. It is calculated the same way, regardless uh, as to how you purchase the property, all cash, all financed, 70-30, whatever split, depreciation is still the same every single year. And you basically, to, to calculate the depreciation, the annual depreciation expense that you get to claim, you take the purchase price minus the cost of land, and that gives you the building value. Then you take the building value and you divide it by 27 and a half years for residential and 39 years for non-residential property. So my building value divided by 27 and a half years is my annual depreciation expense that I get to claim. So going back to our example, if we had 30K of revenue, 20K of operating expenses, I made money, right? I had $10,000 of cash flow. But if I have $12,000 of depreciation, I get to t- tell the IRS, the IRS that I lost 2,000 bucks. Right. So even though I made money, I get to tell the IRS that I lost money. Now, there's 
there's tax benefits embedded in that regardless, because I made money from my rental and I'm not paying tax on it today. But the other piece of it is how can I use that $2,000 tax loss? And that's where the passive activity loss rules come into play. So to your point, a tax loss does not necessarily mean that I actually lost money. And that is a very important distinction to understand, especially if you're investing with like syndicators, you know, like in, mm. in different sponsors, sponsorship groups and stuff like that. Really, really important to understand the difference between an operating loss and a tax loss. Yeah, huge difference. And so the tax loss when you're passive is you don't get to claim that against your income, going back to what we were saying earlier, which is a, I'm not going to say it like ruins the tax benefits of real estate. Real estate can, it still has some like pretty nice tax benefits, but it's a, it'd be far more appealing if you could take that tax loss now when you're earning your top, top earning potential, as opposed to, to not being able to, to take it. But there are some uh, options, right? Like you can, there's some ways to potentially take that, right? Yeah, yeah. There, there are exceptions to the passive activity loss rules. And, you know, it's kind of to your, your point about the loss. If you can claim the loss against your W-2 or business income, what we say is that that's, that's ideal state, right? That's fully optimized from a tax perspective. But if you can't claim the loss, it, it gets suspended and it gets carried forward. That's not, that's not like, like, I mean, it's not fully optimized, but it's not, awful at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of people do think that they go like, well, we will have conversations with people and they'll say, well, I thought I was going to be able to claim the tax loss. So investing in real estate is pointless. And it's not pointless because of two things. One, uh, the cash flow that you're receiving today, you didn't pay tax on because you you showed the IRS that you lost money. So you made income. You didn't pay tax on the income. If you stack that on top of your W-2 income that you made and you compare that to your W-2, the, the taxes that you're paying on your W-2, well, the taxes that I paid on my W-2 are not changing, but I've now made more total money. So my mm -hmm. effective tax rate has decreased, right? That is good. At the same time, my I'm paying down a note, most likely. My, I have a mortgage on the property, so I'm paying that down through through my rents and my, my property is appreciating in value. So my equity position in the property is growing and I can, I can tap into that equity position on a tax-free basis. I can do a cash-out refinance, I can sell the property via a 1031 exchange or even a, a lazy man's 1031 exchange. There are multiple ways to compound, make that snowball of wealth building compound much faster by investing in real estate. So mm. just want to point that out. But there are many, there, there are a few exceptions to the passive activity loss rules. The, the two that are most often talked about these days, not to not to make the other two sound less important, but the two that are most often talked about are qualifying as a real estate professional and running a short-term rental rather than a long-term rental. So if you qualify as a real estate professional, the passive activity loss rules don't apply to you anymore as long as you are materially participating in your rental real estate activities. And if you're running a short-term rental, you don't have to worry about qualifying as a real estate professional. You just have to worry about materially participating in the short-term rental. And I'm happy to go into all that. Yeah. So the, my understanding is the real estate professional... So if you're doing long-term rentals, well, let's let's clarify. What's the definition of short-term rental versus long-term rental? Yeah, good question. So technically there is no such thing as short-term rental, but in the treasury regulations, there's a the definition of a rental activity excludes property where the average period of customer use is seven days or less. And that is Airbnb or VRBO type property, right? So if if my average period of customer use, if my tenants on average stay 
seven days or less in my rental, then I do not have a rental activity under section 469. And essentially all that means is that I don't have to qualify as a real estate professional because section 469 says all rental activities are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. And it also says any trader business that you don't materially participate in is passive. So those are the two types of passive activities under section 469. But if I don't have a rental activity, I don't have to worry about the all rentals are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. Because it's just like a business. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I, but I still, because of that second piece, I do have to materially participate in the, in the trader business, in the rental activity in order to make it non-passive. And that is significant for anybody that has a full-time job because one of the quantitative tests to real estate professional status to qualify as a real estate professional is spending more time in real estate than anywhere else. And that's the material part you're talking about. So material participation is separate from the real estate professional okay. status test. Yeah. So to qual- let's explain that. So to qualify as a real estate professional, you have to spend 750 hours in real property trades or businesses, and you have to spend more time in real property trades or businesses than you do anywhere else. Those are the two tests for real estate professional status. You then have to materially participate in the activity, but material participation applies to all sorts of businesses, right? It applies to your business. It applies to my CPA firm. There's seven tests for material participation. The three that we see most often are spending 500 hours in the activity, spending 100 hours and more than anyone else. And your time is substantially all the time. Basically, it just means you did all the work and nobody else participated. Those are the three tests we see most often. You only have to meet one of the tests to materially participate. But real estate professional status, the significance of the short-term rental loophole, and I call it a loophole because and there's like arguments online if it's, an, if it's <laughs> technically a loophole or not, but I call it a loophole because when these rules were written, Airbnb and VRBO were like, that was not something that was, that was thought of. And now everybody's doing it. So I don't think that it was the intent of Congress to necessarily allow this to happen. But regardless, however, loophole versus exception, whatever you want to call it, the significance is that real estate professional status requires you to spend more time in real estate than anywhere else. So if you have a full-time job and you're working 2,000 hours a year, you have to spend an additional 2,001 hours in real estate. So your total working time is over 4,000 hours a year. And even though you can do it, I'm an optimist. I believe that we've got a lot of hard workers. Even if you can do it, the IRS and the tax court will never buy it. So if you have a full-time job, you can't qualify as a real estate professional, which is why people look to the short-term rental loophole instead. Mm -hmm. And that's a much easier threshold to... It's an easier threshold because you don't have to spend more time in real estate than anywhere else. And you're looking at the material participation test. So a lot of our clients that run with this, they target that 100 hours and more than anyone else test. So they'll track their cleaners time. You know, their cleaners might log 102 hours. Well, you now have to log 103 hours, 100 hours and more than anyone else. I imagine it's a little harder if you're using a property manager. Uh, it's it's impossible if you're using a property manager. I, you know, and again, I'm an, I don't want to say it's impossible. I'm sure Very there's great. a way to do it. Yeah, but in 99% of cases, you're not going to be able to to materially participate if you have a property manager. And if you think about it, like who who is the real estate professional there? Who's the one actually doing the work? Well, the property manager is, not you. And that's what the IRS is going to argue all day long if you get audited for this. Mm. Yeah, I think several of our clients that do it, they have their spouse do it. That, Like say they were staying at home with the kids and then they're now kids are going to school and they're like, I'd like to get into real estate. Love that. So that's, there's no other career to compete with or whatever. And they can literally, literally is their focus. 
Yep. Brilliant strategy. Brilliant strategy. If you, if you are the breadwinner and your spouse stays at home and your spouse has an interest in real estate, and that is very critical. <laughs> we, we get clients every once in a while. It's like, well, uh, my spouse is going to do it, but my spouse doesn't like real estate. I'm like, well, let me tell you, it's not going to work. <laughs> so as long as your spouse is into it and they want to manage it, 100% go for it. That's a beautiful way to achieve real but estate. But they need to actually that. manage it. Yeah, they need to actually manage it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the IRS is pretty strict on enforcing these kinds of, I've heard people kind of talk like they're kind of abusing these rules and there's been some, <laughs> I mean, I've just heard people say things that make me think they're probably pushing these rules. And I imagine I've not actually been through any experience with the IRS in relation to this specific thing, but I imagine they're very strict on it and it's a very cut and dry thing. It is very cut and dry. Yes. It, it's, it, it's been so litigated that it's pretty clear on how it works, what type of hours count, what type of hours don't count, which is also why I'm always like left scratching my head when I hear about the same things that you're talking about around the ecosystem of real estate. And there's, you know, CPAs that are somewhat reputable saying the same stuff. And it's like when you can point to three tax court cases that mm -hmm. is very clearly swinging the opposite direction, it's just like, what's going on there, guys? So we, we spend a lot of time trying to help tax accountants understand this stuff because. I think, I think it is nuanced. I think it's complex. You do have to read quite a few tax court cases to get the hang of it. And I think a lot of accountants don't really read those tax court cases. And if you're an accountant listening to this and you're like, oh, I read it, trust me, like there's accountants out there that do read it and you guys are the heroes, but there's also a lot that don't read any of the court cases. And those are the ones that are typically saying things like, oh yeah, going to a networking event counts as real estate professional status time, listening to this podcast counts as real estate professional status time, you know, doing research counts as real estate professional status time. And I can show you multiple tax court cases where that is not true. Yet we see it every day. We, we, we see people, you know, come join our firm and they're like, my CPA allowed me to do this last year, but I now I listen to your podcast and I realized it was wrong. So I just want to work with you guys can tell me the truth. And I think, I think a lot of this happens because audit rates are so low and you know, the CPA it just, when audit rates are low, you can be a little lazier with your tax strategy and your compliance. And, but the problem is, is that when it gets uncovered, you know, there's nothing stopping the IRS from pulling somebody's return from a firm, realizing that they received poor advice and then saying, okay, well, we've got this CPA's PTA number. Let's just go pull all the other returns yep. that are similar to this, that this CPA prepared. So as a consumer, as a buyer of tax preparation services, you have to guard against the FOMO that you will experience when you get into these various groups online and you see somebody saying, oh, I'm going to qualify as a real estate professional or I'm going to qualify for the short-term rental loophole. And you're kind of sitting there like, "Are you? that doesn't make any sense. How can you possibly do, be doing that? You have to guard against jumping on with that same accountant because sometimes people won't tell you what you need to hear to win audits and, and to substantiate yourself. They will tell you what you want to hear to win your business and, and take your money. And so you have to be the one that educates yourself on this stuff, at least at a high level. You know, you don't need to know all the code sections. You don't need to know the, the tax court authority, but knowing what questions to ask and just knowing, you know, when things are potentially red flags will really help you avoid getting in a bad situation at some later point. Because when those audits come, they, they come fast and, and it's a flood. Yeah. And it's not 
worth it when when people go through those they're like this was definitely not worth it i mean and they're gonna there's typically gonna be cost if you were pushing the limit and even if there wasn't it's probably not worth it because it's such a i actually had an audit early in my professional career very very early like several years out of college even and i was self-employed and i learned very quickly how the experience worked and it was actually i would consider it a good experience kind of like a failing forward experience type thing where but it i really learned how they work and had an appreciation for record keeping and all that sort of thing. And they were for real. I mean, they're like, you know, they're like, we need you to, I remember they were looking at, I think it was mileage. Cause in that job, I was writing off mileage and they're like, okay, we see your mileage log. We need to see your calendar. And so I'm like, oh, that's creative. <laughs> so they kept digging to try to verify it. I'm like, they're smart people like all of us. And they're going to find it. If you've pushed the envelope. I'm glad you said that because I think that a lot of us have an ego that thinks that we're smarter than the IRS agent, but the IRS hires very capable and very smart people. And, and the people that are auditing section 469 are very smart people. So, you know, pu pushing the boundaries here is not, is not a wise decision. I mean, I, and I've seen, I've seen it all. I've seen the whole, oh, it took me eight hours to set up my VRBO listing. And it's like, dude, nobody, <laughs> nobody's going to buy that. Like it, it, VRBO takes 30 minutes to set up and another 30 minutes to load your photos. So either your computer illiterate or like <laughs> something is wrong, right? Either way you need help, but you know, you just, you gotta, you gotta take this. If you're going to qualify for real estate professional status, or if you're going to run with that short-term rental exception, you have to be very careful and you have to be very diligent about documenting your time. And another thing that we get every once in a while, I'll get a question and, and somebody will say like out in one of our communities will be like, well, I bought a short-term rental, but I'm going to use it 21 days, right? Which trips up the personal use rules. It means that you can't, if you cost seg and bonus depreciate the property and it creates a big tax loss, you can't actually use the tax loss because you trip the personal use rules. The tax loss gets suspended. You, you can't use deductions in excess of income once you trip those personal use rules. So they'll say things like, well, I'm going to go and stay there for a while, but don't worry. Like I'm going to uh, do it in a way where, you know, somebody, if I get audited, they won't be able to find it. Or they'll ask me, <laughs> If I do get audited, how would they find it? But it's really simple. It's like, okay, let's look at your calendar. When did you block your calendar? Because what are you going to do? You're going to block your calendar. You're yeah. not, not going to decide I'm going to go take a three-week trip and potentially have somebody be able to schedule during my three-week trip. So I'm going to go block my calendar. And then they're going to go and look at your bank statements. Transactions. And... Yeah, exactly. It's, just like... it's like, oh, Naples, Florida, Naples, Florida, Naples, right, Florida. Right, uh -huh. right, right, right. It's like, I come on, guys. <laughs> Credit card statements, everything. So you got you to gotta be careful with this stuff. Uh, you will leave a paper trail. And that's the important thing to understand is that they can they can dig those paper trails up. Well, one of my favorite quotes I say on the podcast all the time, it's uh, I'll tell you what's most important. Show me your calendar and your checkbook. That reminded me of that. It's like, the IRS can ask for your calendar and checkbook when you're getting audited. And that will show them very quickly, like what's actually going on. Like you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their calendar and their checkbook. And you kind of have to be reasonable about these things and not so err on the side of like, you know, following the rules at a, at a start. And like you got your firm is helping someone to follow the rules as opposed to an accountant. I always just advocate for clients hiring accountants that are going to help them stay compliant as opposed to a lot of times clients want to hire accountants that will help them find all the loopholes. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Me and you can go find the loopholes and then, then they can say like, that's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like they need to help you stay between the lines. 
I get the question every once in a while. Oh, I'm looking for an aggressive accountant that's going to push the boundaries. Are you aggressive? Are you a risk taker? And I, I always kind of chuckle when I get this question because the people that are pushing the boundaries that are risk takers are typically, it, they're typically pushing the boundaries due to their own ignorance. <laughs> like a lot of times they're not intending to do what they're doing, but they just don't know any better. They don't understand how these rules work. It'd be like, you know, me going into the restaurant niche and offering tax services to restaurant owners and having all sorts of strategies around inventory, even though I've never done anything related to the restaurant niche. It's like, yeah, okay. Like, is that aggressive or is that just not knowing? Um, and so, you know, I, I like having those conversations because I think that I think that what consumers perceive to be as aggressive is from a professional perspective, a lot of times, not, not every time, there are definitely places where you can push the boundaries, but a lot of the times it's just ignorance. It's, it's just simply reporting things incorrectly, setting the consumer up for unneeded risk, right? Especially when it comes to real estate professional status and material participation. I, I can't tell you how many times I see the whole, oh yeah, my accountant, let me count all my research time and all my networking time. And, and I'll be like, dude, I just had two audits last quarter that people called me in on that they lost because that's what their time log showed is research time and networking time. I was like, that does not count. Yeah, trust it doesn't me. help. Yeah. It doesn't help your property collect more rent or pay more bills. Like it just doesn't work like that. So, but if you don't know these rules, then, you know, you can get caught taking positions that you didn't intend to take. Yeah. And that's really, I think expertise is a key factor. Like if you're paying for help, expertise is, is a huge deal. That's why we advocate specialists, like the fact that you focus on in your firm working with real estate, that's a huge deal because shows that you spend lots of time in that area. Just like our planning firm, like we zero in on working with earlier career physicians. I mean, like when you zero in on one area, you're going to develop better expertise and be able to provide much more value. And real estate is a, the one thing about real estate, I mean, I know people call it passive income and I know why people call it passive income, but I get a little annoyed when people call it passive <laughs> income because it implies that you make money when you sleep. Yeah. And I'm like, no, there's work, right? You got to hire or either you have to hire good people and probably both do lots of hard work and in order to make it work. I mean, that's yeah. been your experience, I imagine, right? Working with oh, yeah, yeah. hundreds of yeah. real estate pros. Oh yeah, definitely. I, and, and I will say in our experience, the people that grow the largest portfolios and build the most wealth are the people that are running their own portfolio. So they end up vertically integrating property management and acquisitions and repairs and maintenance and all this stuff so that they can scale, scale, scale. And that is not passive. That That is a bit, they are running real estate businesses that just happen to be rental real estate businesses, right? But it's, but that's very different from like what I'm doing. I have 25 units and I try to make that as passive as I possibly can. It's not passive, but I try to because I'm focused on building my CPA firm. But if you really want true passive in real estate, then you need to be buying triple net lease properties. You need to be investing in syndicates. But each one of those carries additional risk. It carries you know, the, 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 yeah, exactly. Triple net and the triple net carries a uh, lower returns, right? So, so anytime that you're going to move passive, you're giving up things, you're giving up returns, you're giving up control. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Ren Financial Planning. In case it's not already obvious, real estate can be a fantastic way to build wealth and alternative streams of income. Sometimes it might even seem like it's easy. However, if that was true, everybody would be doing it. And that's just not the case. The reality is that it's tough. 
It's tough to pull the trigger on your first house. It's tough when things don't go as planned. It's tough when things go really well sometimes, but you're unsure how to keep it all organized and efficient. That's where our team at Ren Financial Planning can help. These are all very normal challenges that we've helped physicians work through many times before. We're here as a financial advocate to help you make better decisions that are, of course, as smart as they can be. For example, we're typically the guy that's gonna remind you to run the numbers before you pull the trigger, or maybe we're gonna be suggesting educating yourself a little bit more first. Or maybe we're suggesting that you hire an accountant. We can also help you think about maybe what financing looks like and what's a reasonable amount of risk to take. But more importantly, we're gonna be here to help you make better decisions. And when I say better, I don't mean just getting rich. I mean decisions that align more with your ultimate why. We wanna help you avoid the temptation we all feel to get wrapped up in the shiny object of just making more money to get rich and instead help you refocus on using this as yet another tool available to help you live life in better alignment with your values and goals. Doing this is gonna help you make more confident financial decisions that ultimately improve your life. If this sounds interesting to you, please schedule a free consult with one of our planners at Ren Financial Planning and we can talk more about it. You'll see a link in the show notes and make sure to indicate you found us from the Finance for Physicians podcast. We look forward to talking with you. Okay, let's get back to the show. But I want the good returns and the past. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you you tell me when you figure out how to how to get that done. And I'll I'll follow in your footsteps. (laughs) No, no, it's it's a kind of a doesn't doesn't really exist. What about the people? I'm curious about the difference between like the one or two properties types and like the 25. It seems like in my experience, there's a whole bunch of people that have had zero or not zero. Well, maybe I guess we could talk, say like zero properties talk about it a lot, and then one and two properties n- and never really get above that threshold. There's a ton of those people, but then there's a, a smaller circle of people that get above that, and it seems like they grow fast. Like they don't stay mm-hmm. around three properties. It's like they get to twenty five or whatever they get to. And I'm not sure I have theories on what the differences are between those two types of people, but I'm curious of your thoughts. Like, what's what's the difference there? I, I well, I think there's a lot of differences. So we could probably have this conversation. We could probably talk for hours about this, but um, I think that the two main things that I see are people who scale their wealth and their portfolios quickly or, and, or to a very large extent uh, understand how to use leverage to their, to their benefit and are comfortable doing so. What I mean is you buy one property, you rehab it, you force appreciation, you immediately cash out, refinance, you use the funds to buy the second property and you keep renting and repeating as fast as you can. Those people, especially over the past decade, have scaled multi, multi-million, tens of million dollar portfolios simply because of the way that they used leverage. I would say that the other kind of key aspect here from what I, from my perspective of, of who grows large portfolios, we work with a lot of a lot of individuals that make a lot of money. I think our typical client's going to make like six, $700,000. And then we work with, you know, people that are making seven figures and eight figures as well. The people that scale portfolios to a significant extent are making good income and they're laser focused on rolling that income into real estate and scaling it out. And in their income, their main income stream is typically scalable. So not only are they scaling a real estate portfolio, but they're scaling their their main income stream at the same time. 
And they're just doing that year over year over year. And it might take them 20 years to build a large portfolio, but they don't give up along the way and they keep doing it. And so if you think about that, if you're a, uh, I don't know, a physician and you are making $600,000 being a physician and maybe, maybe over a five-year period that goes to $700,000, you know, I would say, okay, that income's not scaling as fast as we would probably like, but you might along the way have opportunities to invest in things like surgical centers, office practices, and things like that. And that might give you the boost of one, two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars. And then the question just becomes, what are you doing with that? Are you going to go and buy your Ferrari? Are you going to go buy a boat? Or are you going to buy rental properties? Because I guarantee you, if you can defer gratification for a span of a decade and you keep rolling hundreds of thousands of dollars into rental properties, uh, you will have larger, uh, a, a, a much larger nest egg at the end. And I guess I shouldn't say guarantee because nobody can guarantee anything, but that's what I've seen over the past decade. And you know, the past decade has been an, maybe an anomaly in, in the market. It's been a big run up. But man, if you were doing what I was just talking about, you would have a multi, multi-million dollar portfolio at this point. Yeah, lots of appreciation, low interest rates, leverage was good. And who knows what the future holds. I mean, interest rates have gone up lately, and but real estate still seems to be doing okay. And It's going to get harder because the low interest rates cover for people's mistakes and ignorance. So when you have higher interest rates, there's more on the line. Like you've got to figure out how to force that appreciation. You've got to figure out how to get that cash flow rolling. It's not... It's not as easy as just throwing money down, buying a property, and just across the board raising everybody's rent a hundred bucks a month. It doesn't work like that anymore, or or that won't get you to where you need to be in today's market. So, what we're seeing is our clients that are amazing operators are still finding big success, and our clients that were the kind of mediocre operators, sort of just an, an operator could just be an individual buying real estate, or it could be somebody running a syndication or fund they're the ones that are struggling to continue to add value for their investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think another struggle for physicians is the time. A lot of physicians are have pretty demanding jobs and they don't have, I mean, if you're already working 60 hours a week in your job, real estate as a side gig is going to be difficult because you're going to come home and usually, you know, you got kids and family and everything and you come home and you're like, oh, and I got to go whatever, do the, the RBO or the tenants got the request or blah, blah, blah. And, it, you know, the headaches on top of the 60 hour a week job is unpleasant. So I think yeah. it's not even unpleasant. It's like unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I get it, man. When you say yes to one thing, I, my philosophy is you got to say, when you say yes to one thing, you got to say no to the other things. So you, can, yes. you can't just keep stacking stuff on top yes. of things. Yes. yes. You got to have a plan for like, oh, I'm going to say yes, this real estate thing. So I'm going to say, well, what am I going to say no to? Or how am yeah. I going to shift down? I think it's hard, especially for physicians, because you're right, you are working a lot, but you're also making a lot of money. And what happens is you look at, okay, I could buy this single family rental and do this whole real estate investing idea. It's going to cash flow 500 bucks a month. Like that's not going to be life-changing for me. So this just is not worth my time. And I think a lot of people get stuck with that mentality and they just never start as a result. But for me, I'm like, okay, but you buy one, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get the bug. You're going to want to buy a second one. Then you're going to buy a third. Then you're going to want to buy 10. Then you're going to, then you're going to want to double that and buy 20. All of a sudden, you've got $10,000 of cash flow coming in every single month. This might take you, you know, six, seven years to actually get to, but still, you've got $10,000 of cash flow coming in every single month. It's all tax deferred. You've built equity through your portfolio, through appreciation and debt paydowns. Now you can start refinancing everything and using that to buy even more property and accelerate the process. Like 
the thing that we have to get in our minds is that we're starting a snowball and it's going to roll downhill and it's going to become a massive snowball uh, as long as the hill's big enough, right? And But, it, but it, it's going to be really slow at first and that's okay. But as long as you believe in the process and you believe in the end result, you can keep grinding and keep pushing this wealth, right? It's not an overnight thing. It's not a get rich quick thing. I mean, you yeah. gotta, it's a long game. Yeah. And going in with that mindset is, is much, much better. You don't have a letdown when you're like, oh, it's been the first year and I'm not rich yet. Right, you know? exactly. And you won't be. <laughs> and you'll no, probably no, feel that way too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, the first, like, it's kind of like the first year is yeah. probably the hardest. And yeah. I, you know. But, well, the but, first year, especially like you go into your first property and you immediately are stressed out. I remember, I remember doing this. I did this twice with my, with one of my long-term, my first long-term rental and my first short-term rental. Even though I could carry them, even though I was financially sound, you buy it. And the minute you take ownership, you're just immediately stressed because you're just like, okay, the mortgage has started and I have to get this thing rented out right now for top dollar. <laughs> but like, it's just, it's, it's just you having, but anyway, you, you keep building and you start realizing there's a, there's a pattern to this. There's a game to this. It, there's an art and a science to this. And as long as I play the long game, I will win over a long period of time. And that's what real estate investing is. There are people that do this full time. And if you follow them, on social media and you see their results, you will feel inadequate, but you have to separate yourself from them because they are doing it full time. It'd be like trying to go and, and trade stocks for two hours a day when there's people on Wall Street doing it for 10 hours a day before you get up in the morning and after you go to bed at night, right? Yeah. It's like, those guys are going to win every single day. So don't try to compete with them. Just buy your rentals, build that wealth. And over time, it'll give you exit options. And I know, I know being a physician has been really tough over the past few years. That's what the number one thing all of our physicians say. We always ask everybody, why are you investing in real estate? Our physician clients are saying, because I don't want to be tied to this job. I love helping people. I love saving lives. I love, I love medicine, but I hate the hospital. I hate the practice. I hate the fact that I'm tied to this. and I don't have any say over my hours or over how much I have to work and I want to see my family and my kids grow up and I want to spend more time with them. If that's you, start building opportunities that give you flexibility later. Real estate is one of those opportunities. If you're net, if it takes you seven years to build a cash flow stream of $10,000 a month, mm -hmm. that still gives you flexibility to either reduce your hours, to find a lower, a better work-life balance gig. Like, like doing this over time will, will provide you with later in life opportunities to to create the work-life balance you're looking for mm -hmm. yeah and, and i think educating yourself physicians are great at educating they've been through a lot of education and they're they're like the smartest guys in the class and once you start educating yourself further and like listening to brands podcasts and there's a bazillion that's the thing there's a million podcasts on real estate to the point where it's overwhelming but like listen to listen to brandon's podcast and look at the guests that you're bringing on and like listen to their podcast that's typically an approach i would use because you at least are in like a circle of trusted people but you can educate yourself in that you know, you'll start to feel more confident and buying your first property after educating yourself quite a bit. And then you learn from experience and then you can kind of build on that is a, a great approach. It's not for everybody, but it's a heck of a, a business to build. And it can be that ticket out of, or at least partial ticket out of medicine. And I agree, people are struggling in healthcare. It's, it's a very challenging job and they're looking for some, a little bit of freedom outside of medicine. Yeah. I mean, I love real estate and I started a real estate CPA firm back in 2016, because I wanted to see behind the curtains of what I 
presumed to be we're, we're rich and wealthy people. And my main, my main question was, does real estate actually make you rich? And I can confirm that if you play this game long enough and you learn from your mistakes and you always try to improve, yeah, it definitely can. I mean, we have incredibly wealthy clients that have been at this for decades. And like I said, the, the snowball effect is very real. It might feel so slow for the first 10 years. And then it'll speed up for the second 10 years. And then it'll be like light speed for the last 10 years. You know, it's just, that's how this game works. So it's a, it's a constant grind, the American way, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the rewards can be very compelling. So, yeah. And it's all tax deferred. For right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is coming from the tax pro. So yeah. cool. Well, I appreciate it, Brandon. It's, it's been fun chatting about taxes and real estate and definitely go and check out Brandon's podcast. You can dig in deeper. There's, there's all kinds of good nuggets in there and check out his tax firm. If you, especially if you're buying real estate or getting into it yourself. And as always, it's, it's been fun. Brandon, thanks for coming on. It's been a good time. Appreciate having me on Daniel. You've been listening to finance for physicians to make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player. On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.